Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. You, <laughs> you're ridiculous. That, that was so good. I'm just going to pray and let's go, okay? That was, I feel good. Um, hey, so glad to have you. So glad you're here. Um, why don't we pray over this? Because you guys just messed the whole thing up. So, no, I'm kidding. Um, we're going to jump right in here and I'm going to tell you a story that I probably shouldn't. And so, when I was about 10 years old, uh, I, was, I was at home in the afternoon and I was just kind of hanging out. And my mom said, hey, Let's go and grab something for dinner. And so I said, yeah, that, that sounds great. Okay, so I went, took my little 10-year-old self into my room, was changing my clothes. And she said, hey, by the way, there's a couple guys out on the street corner, and they've been talking to this lady, and they need a place to go and pray for her. And so they're going to come into our house, and they're going to pray in the living room. And I said, oh, that, that sounds great. I grew up in church. This is no big deal. I thought, oh, that's, yeah, that's totally normal. And so I went into my room, and I'm changing my clothes, and I was about to en- exit my room. And I was reaching for that doorknob, to step back outside. And I heard from the living room, my 10-year-old ears heard from the living room, and I'm not kidding, this woman in this kind of deep, guttural voice scream, and these were the words that she said. No, I won't come out. That's what she said. (laughs) And I kind of went, I don't want to go out there. (laughs) And it was kind of my first encounter with another kingdom. My first encounter with a bit of spiritual darkness and what some people would call demonic oppression in this lady's life. And they brought her into my house. And so my mom said, she came to my door really quick while I'm standing there. And she said, hey, let's just go right now. And I was like, yeah, let's just do that. Let's go right now. And so so I skirted the living room. And, and walked out, and they stayed and delivered this poor lady and all of that. Now, now some of you I know already, you're like, oh boy, what kind of church did we come to? I, I, I knew we should not have come here. I knew it. I had a bad feeling about it. You're wanting to sneak out. Others of you, you're thinking, um, you're thinking like, well, Brent, you don't understand. Pastor, you don't, you don't get it. Like, she has mental health issues, and so we need to have some. Okay, that's one way of looking at it, yes. Uh, and others of you are like, oh, no, that's a demon. That's a demon. Exercise the demon. Like, get him out of there. And you're excited about it. And so all those reactions are happening in the room. And that's probably appropriate. All of them are probably appropriate. And probably all of that's happening to some degree. But today, we're continuing this How to Pray series from Pete Grieg's book, How to Pray, a Simple Guide for Normal People. And we're going to talk about this next line in the Lord's Prayer. This whole series is based around the Lord's Prayer. And we're working line by line. And today is Deliver Us from evil. And so it's going to be exciting, everybody. Buckle up. Here we go. Um, Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about it. He says, enemy-occupied territory. That's what the world is. Enemy-occupied territory. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in in a great campaign of sabotage. Everybody say sabotage. And if you like the Beastie Boys, dig that. All right, so um, most of you don't. Um, so the Bible's really clear, everybody, that there is a war that's happening. 
There's an actual war that's raging all around us all the time. It's a spiritual battle, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It really is happening. It's a reality. And so Lewis says, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Think about that for a second. Every moment, everything that you're doing, it's claimed by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, God's good government, his rule and reign, and counterclaimed by Satan. And that word Satan, we maybe don't use it all the time, day to day, unless you're really at odds with your spouse, but we, we don't use that a lot. But it just, it's a word that literally means the enemy or the adversary. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus would say about him that he's the thief. And what he comes to do is to steal from you, to kill you, and to destroy you. And then he says, but I, I came so that you can have life. And so that you can have life to the full. And so, since there's no neutral ground in the universe, there can't be neutral people either. We can't be neutral in the battle. Everybody's got to pick a side. Nobody gets to be a conscientious objector in this fight. And I think that failing to choose a side actually means typically that you are choosing a side. And typically, it ends up being the wrong side. That's the way that it goes. So in this context, that great reformer, Martin Luther, he says this about prayer. We must all practice violence. In prayer, everybody. Not out on the street, not to your neighbor, just in prayer. We must all practice violence and remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. Satan is opposed to the church. And the best thing that we can do, therefore, is to put our fists together and pray. That's the best thing that we can do. So the Bible's clear. We're engaged in a spiritual battle where God's purposes and God's plans are constantly contested by an enemy. And so prayer is that space where we enter in. Prayer is the place where we harness our wills to God's will against Satan's will. Prayer is the place where this happens. We harness our will to God's will against Satan's will. So prayer is really our greatest weapon of defense and of attack. And so we've said it like this for years. When you come to prayer, prayer is two things. Prayer is communion with God and prayer is confronting the enemy. Prayer is where you commune with God and all the things that we've been talking about in this series so far and where you confront, you stand up and fight against the enemy. And people sometimes ask, why do we have to do this? Why does God require us to pray? Like, doesn't he already know everything that's gonna happen? Does it really have an effect? And so (laughs) I don't have any opinions about people that say that apparently. Uh, (laughs) So does it really matter? And the problem is what they think is that prayer is just relentless begging. Like a child asking his father for a treat. Oh, please, please, please give me this. Please, please, please. Or they think about it like that that football fan that's just praying for that last minute touchdown in the fourth quarter. Kind of like David Compost with his 49ers in the Super Bowl. You know what I'm talking about? I love you, man. I love you, man. Those prayers couldn't stand up against Mahomes, I guess. And so, so, oh, that's painful. It just, oh, it just ripped the wound open again for everybody. I'm sorry. Can we get the prayer team to the middle aisle, please? And we're just going to minister to you. <laughs> uh, let's see, other people can play this game, too. It's fun. It's fun. Um, <laughs> I guess they won't be preaching for a long time. Um, so, so, so prayer, we think it's this relentless begging, but it's not. Prayer is where you actually get up off the sidelines, and you get onto the field, and you actually play the game. Prayer is where you start partnering with God to work through and actually determine the outcome of the match. 
So don't tell me prayer's boring. I don't like prayer. No, the reality is you just haven't realized what opportunity you have. You haven't realized that you get to get in the game and actually shape, bend the outcome of reality to God's will. (laughs) Prayer is how that happens. So today we are, we're going to talk a little bit about spiritual warfare, as some people would call it. And actually, it's important because as followers of Jesus, it's something that all of us have to engage in to some degree. And actually, Jesus teaches us in the prayer to pray. He says, when you pray, say, deliver us from evil. And so today, I think that there's just a few things that we need to hit to talk about to encourage you, if you're going to stand firm and pray, deliver us from evil. And the first thing that I think you need to know is you need to know your enemy. You just need to know that there's an actual enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion and he's looking for someone to devour. Look, I'm very aware that this sounds outlandish to some of you. That to some of you, this is like, oh boy, I knew we shouldn't have come here and you want to sneak out right now, but the idea of Satan and angels and demons and apocalyptic battles of good versus evil, that sounds crazy to some of you. It sounds ridiculous and I get that. Uh, to others of you, you're thinking about Marvel movies and the Lord of the Rings, and you're like, ooh, let me in the fight, and you're excited about it. I, under- I understand that those viewpoints are in the room. But listen, in the West, for the most part, we have taken and replaced biblical cosmology or, or the, the origin of the universe and how that happened according to the scriptures. We've kind of replaced all of that with a humanistic psychology, We've replaced it with sociology and anthropology. In other words, what I'm trying to say is in our culture, every sin then gets attributed to a societal cause. Every sin gets attributed to like a a clinical cause. That's how we treat things most of the time now. And yet, for all of our supposed sophistication in our culture, we are all still very aware that there is evil still at work in the world. We know it's true. We know that there are people who, who will imprison those who are innocent. We know that there's people who will drop sarin bombs on innocent civilians. We know that there's people who will abuse children. We know those kinds of things happen. And if we're really honest, we look deep down in ourselves and we realize, actually, there are some dark shadows that lurk inside of me as well. There are things going on in my life that I may not actually want. We have a shocking capacity, we realize, to hurt other people, to hate We have an ability to abuse other people, to use others. And we look inside, and if we're honest, we see it. There's an old movie about 92, Academy Award winning, Silence of the Lambs. Have you seen it? It's rated R, so I haven't seen it, but Saul told me about it. And and as I... It's just funny every time. uh, In this movie... In this movie, uh, you've got Clarice Starling. She's an upcoming FBI agent, and she goes to talk to the cannibalistic serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. Very scary. Welcome to church, everybody. And she goes and talks to him about this idea, what happened to make you so twisted? And here's what he says. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of negative influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants, which, by the way, is a phrase I'm going to be using from now on. You've got everybody in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? This is what we're dealing with in our culture. 
There's an author named Andrew Delbanco, and he'd, he'd be described as a, as a liberal intellectual, and he agrees with this. He says, we've jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil, transcendent evil, supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. We don't want to deal in those. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it's become harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Those words don't do justice to the reality of the evil in our world, is what he's saying. So Pete Grieg, in his book, How to Pray, he says, secularism, is, secularism in our culture which is kind of the defining viewpoint of our culture, it's starting to lose credibility, partly because the way it attempts to deconstruct moral ancient absolutes without offering any satisfactory alternative explanation for the reality that there's evil in our world. So near the end of World War II, there's a German pastor, and he preached a sermon, and he applied this line of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, He applied it to the atrocities of Nazism and to the destruction of Europe. And he said, Dear friends, in our time we have had far too much contact with demonic powers. We have sensed and seen how men and whole movements, by the way, have been corrupted and controlled by mysterious, abysmal powers, leading them where they had no intention of going. We sense how real and almost tangible are the evil spirits in the air, seeing an invisible hand passing an invisible cup of poison from nation to nation and throwing them into confusion. He's saying there is darkness at work in our world. And honestly, if you just read through the Gospels, if you read through them, you'll see that Jesus is consistently dealing with demonic powers in people's lives and taking care of them and getting rid of them and setting those people free. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, verse 12, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, so it's not just your bo- about your boss. It's not just about your spouse. It's not just about you. There are other things at play here, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and... Sorry, everybody, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. They're there. Even in the Old Testament, you read like the book of Daniel, you'll see battle between angels and demons, and you'll see this happening. So the Bible teaches us there are actually spiritual powers that work in our world, and they affect individuals, they affect organizations, they affect cultures, and as citizens of heaven, it is our responsibility to resist them and to partner with God to find freedom for his good world. And so I just want you to come to terms. I just want you to buy it. I just want you to believe it. I want you to believe that the Bible teaches this, and you've got to know there is an enemy out there, and he has plans to destroy you. But along with that, you also need to know the second thing, which is you need to know about your authority. Because you have great authority in Jesus. A lot of Christians that I talk to, they have no problem recognizing that there's demonic powers at work in the world. In fact, they're too good at it. And they're looking for it all over the place. Every conversation is about, oh, demon under the bush. Oh, demon behind the tree. Oh, demon's out to get me. Like they're, they're just, their whole lens is about demonic influences. And listen, don't give them that much authority or power. They don't have it. We'll get more to that in a second. But, but yes, thank God. So, yeah, okay, so, but they look for it everywhere. And so what will happen is they'll say, oh, Brent, you don't understand. Devil's really after me, man. He's after me. He's coming to get me. 
Like at my job, he's working through my boss. He's working hard. He's trying to destroy me. I'm not going to let him, though. I'm not going to let him. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm not going to let him. But see, what happens is, is I show up like, I show up late like four times out of five during the week. I'm late in the day, and my boss gets so mad, and he's yelling at me. And I actually don't like my job, and I don't like my boss. We don't get along very well. But the enemy's really using him to get at me. And I'm like, bro, like just, just go to work on time. The devil's not after you. The boss doesn't hate you. You're lazy. Like, seriously. Just, just. Okay, do you see the, do you see the, I just want you to see the picture. We are not demon hunters around here, all right? And why, why is that, everybody? It's because we have authority in Christ. I don't have to go looking for demons. It doesn't matter that much. I've got an authority in Jesus, and here it is. Because the truth is, a bunch of us, have you ever seen that picture or heard that story? It shows up in kids' fables about like the elephant and the mouse. Have you ever seen a picture like this? Like a little mouse scares the elephant or in cartoons you'll see it happen like this. And it's ridiculous. We're like, oh, that's so silly. That would never happen. A seven-ton elephant scared of a little tiny baby mouse. And yet a bunch of us, when the enemy shows up and actually presses in a little bit, we cower and we fall on the ground and we roll over at the first sight of contact and go, oh no, the enemy has come against me. Watch out. Why do we do that? Because we have failed to realize the authority we have in Jesus. We fail to realize who we are in Christ. And so Paul addresses this in Ephesians. Like he writes to the church of Ephesus, it's a crazy place. There's idolatry everywhere. There's weird sexual practices that are happening. There's the occult is everywhere. And so the young followers of Jesus there, they needed to know that Jesus was Lord and they had authority. So Ephesians chapter one, verse 20, in the message paraphrase, it says, all this energy, it issues from Christ. God raised him from death, set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. He's in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, from the biggest thing to right here in our country. No name, no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. And then after he sets all of that up, he continues to say that if you're in him, if you live in Christ, a phrase which he uses 164 times, he really believes in this. He says, if you're in Christ, then you're seated right there with Jesus. Yeah. Ephesians 2, 6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Here's what happens, though. This is huge. This is huge. It should change everything for you. Because what happens is most of us, we, we come to prayer and we kind of go, Oh, God, I'm a worm. Poor me. I fall short of your glory. It's true. I fall short of your glory. Oh, if you could just see it within yourself to please help my son. He's so stupid. (laughs) He makes such a bad, please just help him. Oh, God, if it's not too much trouble. Okay, (laughs) it was ridiculous. All right, but... But that is how we kind of approach him. And you wouldn't say that, you would, but that's how you think. You wake up in the morning, you kind of go, hey, could you, could you, maybe could you please do something? I don't know, could we? You just don't know him, and you don't know that you're in him, and you don't realize that you have authority. Because what you can do is you can pray from your position in heaven. You pray from that position, not, oh, I'm down here on earth as a lowly worm. No, I am seated with Christ. So you don't say, God, I'm a worm, please help my son. No, you say, God... Would you come here? I am with you in Christ, seated from heaven. Now in the name of Jesus, heal my boy. There's a difference to that. 
And that, if you are in Christ, everybody, that is your position. You don't have to pray here as a lowly worm from earth. Earth? <laughs> from earth. You can play from earth. You can play from your position in heaven, okay? <laughs> I think you got it. Thank you, Mike Tyson. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> you have authority, and it's incredible. Jesus said in Luke 10, 19, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. You have it. And I've given you authority to overcome all the power of the enemy. Amen. Nothing will harm you. So, so th- this idea, it's got to change the way that we see ourselves, the way we see God, the way we approach prayer. It needs to change us on the inside. In prayer, what you're doing is you're learning to rule and reign with Jesus like you will when he comes back again and his kingdom is fully realized everywhere. You're just practicing. And we're implementing, when we pray, we're implementing God's government actually into places of the earth. We're implementing the government of God into our families and our children. We're implementing the government of God into our friends. We're implementing God's government over our workplace. And we're living in our position as sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who you are. So it's ridiculous to even think about it, just rolling over. Oh, I think the enemy's coming against us. Who cares? Stop, stop. I have authority in Christ. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to stand firm. He has all the authority and all the power. But some of you are thinking, well, if that's true, then why do we still see so much terrible stuff in the world? How come I don't experience more power? How come, how come there's so many atrocities still in the world? And I want to tell you a story. Maybe it'll be helpful to you. And it'll be familiar to you. You'll remember the story on June 23rd, 2018, 12 members of a junior soccer team in Thailand, they went with their 25-year-old coach to go explore some caves. Do you remember this story? And they're deep underground, and there was a monsoon, and it flooded the cave. And so they were terrified, and they huddled together, and they were in complete darkness, and they were almost three miles back into that cave. That story hit news cycles. It was everywhere. We all saw it all the time, all around the world. There was more than 900 police officers, more than 100 divers, more than 2,000 people, uh, soldiers were there to try to help in some way, along with all the international news media. So for nine days, nobody could find them. For nine days, they're searching. Nobody knows where they are. And all of us, the world, watched and feared for the worst. And we pumped billions of gallons of water out of the cave just to try to find them. And on July 2nd, a diving team managed to get deep down into the cave's network of tunnels, crawling, climbing, and swimming against the odds, zero ability to see. And after more than six hours and really incredible odds, they discovered the boys, and the boys were alive. And they were cold and scared and starving. They had no idea that people were coming to rescue them. And they were in this little cavern called the Hidden City. And they were just stopped there. You can see the, the picture quality is bad because it was a rescue camera. And so they're huddled in there, alive, cold, and scared. And they didn't realize that everybody had been looking for them for all this time. But what they knew now is, we are saved. Like they knew, we're saved. And the watching world kind of breathed this collective sigh and said, oh, it'll be great. We'll wake up tomorrow and all the boys will be out. This difficult ordeal is over. But it was far from over. Because getting those boys out would be an arduous and dangerous process. And it would have tragic consequences. And... The whole process would take another eight days. So for those watching and praying that wait, it seemed like a long time. But imagine being the boys in the cave. That seemed like an eternity for them. So on the 14th day, five days after they've been found, and one day before the uh, evacuation, one of the divers, a former Thai Navy SEAL, he drowned. 
On the way to take oxygen to the boys, he drowned. And everybody just thought, well, how is this going to work? If a Navy SEAL can't do it, how are we going to get these boys out? These emaciated, starving, tired, hungry boys, how will we get them out? And so the very next day, the first of those boys, they were sedated, they were given oxygen, and they were carried out. It was a five-hour journey. Much of it happened underwater. It's a grueling process that had to be meticulously repeated over and over and over again for each boy over a three-day period. So here's what I want you to see. Having been lost since June 23rd and having been found on July 2nd, they weren't all free until July 10th. Found on July 2nd, but freed on July 10th. Everybody, that's where we live today. Scripture says that we live in these days of dark hope. So we're living between July 2nd and July 10th. We've been found. Jesus has come. He has paid for our sin. He has given us, God has given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. We have all of that, but we are not yet fully rescued. Because there's a day coming when Jesus will come again and his will will be done and his kingdom will reign everywhere. It's not that way yet and that's why he teaches us to pray, let your kingdom come. So we're living in this space. It's difficult to imagine what those boys went through. Like surely they must have in those dark days, they must have had some, some excitement, some joy, some hope that, that they're going to have their favorite meal and soon they're going to be in their warm bed. They're going to experience their parents' warm hugs. can't say that without thinking of Olaf. They're, they're going <laughs> to, I love warm hugs. They're going to experience warm hugs. But, but along with all of that joy and excitement and hope, they had to have experienced a ton of frustration because they're waiting. Because a, a seal diver, he died trying to reach them. Terror at the thought of what was going to happen to them to be able to get out those three miles. So when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, it was finished. And he declared the end of death, the cure for suffering, the remission of sin once and for all. And in that one moment, we were found. Light entered our cave. Hope dispelled our despair. We realized we are saved by the sacrifice of another. And yet, here we are, still waiting, still sometimes suffering, still sometimes anticipating the freedom of what is to come. That's where we live. Romans 8, verse 18 says, I consider, Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Skip down a little bit. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This is what God is doing. This is what's going on. This is what we're waiting eagerly for, for the full freedom that Jesus has purchased for us to set us free. We've been rescued, but still we must keep praying. He says, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Theologian N.T. Wright says, to pray that, to pray deliver us from evil is to inhale the victory of the cross. Isn't Isn't that a great phrase? Inhale the victory of the cross and thereby hold the line for another moment, another hour another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. And Jesus says, when you come to pray every day, I want you to say, deliver us from evil. You pray this way. 
We have every reason to hope because Jesus' cross means we've been found. And his resurrection assures us that one day we will all have complete freedom. So you got to know that there's an enemy, but you don't worry so much about that. you got to know your authority. You think a lot about that. And then finally, you just know how to fight. You just know how to do it. Some of you are like, oh, you see our marriage. We know how to do it. That's not what I'm talking about. Know how to fight. Satan is a defeated foe. There's no doubt about it. His demise is assured. It's going to happen. You read the end of the book, he loses. God wins. God has already won. But he's not going down without a fight. And so that sometimes seems a little scary from time to time. Why don't you guys come on back up? We'll finish. In fact, in Revelation 12, 12, it says, it says that he, Satan, that he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. There's a theologian, Chuck Lowe, and I'm not going to take the time to read his whole quote, but he just talks about the enemy being like a wounded animal, and he's kind of cowering, and he's headed down, and as he's down, he's throwing every swing he can get at you to try to take you, and that does seem kind of scary, but the end is in sight, and those who endure to the end are going to be victorious. In the meantime, though, sometimes we become victims. So all of us have had that experience. We've cried out for a loved one to be healed, and some haven't. We've prayed against injustices in our world and still there are some atrocities, though many are curbed. All of that happens in our world. We don't always have happy endings. And when that happens, it's agony to us to lose those battles. But we can rest assured that the ultimate battle, the ultimate victory, it has been won. I like what John Piper says. He says, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you can't know what prayer is for. Everybody, you're in a battle. And so I want to give you three practical things really quick that hopefully can help you as you pray deliver us from evil. And this is from Pete's book, How to Pray. Three questions that you should always ask if you're going to commune with God and confront the enemy in prayer. Three questions that you should ask when you're confronting. Number one is you need to ask what the diagnosis is. So you ask, what is the enemy's strategy against this person or place? Like you just stop and you meditate on that a little bit and you ask God. And here's the thing, you're gonna need some common sense. Often, it's not that hard. Well, God, the enemy's working on their marriage and trying to break them apart. Well, the enemy's got this guy and he's, and he's cratering in substance, substance abuse. He's having a hard time, so we need to pray about that. So a lot of times, it'll be like that. You'll need a lot of wisdom because not all bad things are demonic. Just right. point that out. <laughs> Sometimes we just make foolish decisions. And you'll need some spiritual discernment because the enemy can be a convincing liar. So you ask God to open your eyes and understand what's really happening with this person in this place. Ask him and he'll start to reveal things for to you. And then you go to the prognosis. So you ask, what might God's better plan be for this person or place? If the enemy's strategy is this, what is God's plan? Well, he wants those two to love each other in their marriage. He wants them to serve and lay down their lives for one another. We can pray about that. He wants you to be kind to your friend. He wants you to stop drinking. Not that hard. Like he was, we, we can work on those kinds of things. What's God's better plan? Well, God's better plan for that guy is, I want him to be filled up with you so he doesn't feel like he's got to go drown himself in something else. And then as you're thinking about that, you're thinking about Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, he says, to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. 3 John 1, 2, great verse to pray over these people. Beloved, I pray. So I pray that that guy may prosper, that he'll prosper in all things, and he will be in health just as his soul prospers. God, make his soul to prosper. So you diagnose, you pro- they give a prognosis, and then the prescription. So what can I do 
now to prayerfully and practically thwart the enemy's plans and welcome God's better purposes for this person, place, or situation. Just leave that up for a second if people want to write that down. What can I do to partner? And there's two things here, prayerfully and practically to thwart the enemy's schemes. And you already know that there are schemes. I'm not going to read it, but Ephesians 6, we read a little bit of it. We're fighting against spiritual forces in dark places, talking about the putting on the full armor of God and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and, and the shoes with the preparation of gospel of peace. Like Most of you have read that passage. If you haven't, Ephesians 6, 11, it's in your notes. Read it later. But it also says that you've got the sword of the Spirit. And did you notice that the only piece of military hardware that you have to attack is the sword of the spirit. It's the Bible. And a little secret, that's enough. That's all you need. That's what Jesus used when he was out in the wilderness and the enemy was coming with temptations. He used an opposing scripture for everything that the devil brought to him. You wonder why we say, hey, you should read the daily Bible reading. Hey, I want to make sure you get in the word. Hey, let's study the scriptures together. Hey, because you need an answer for these kinds of things. So you read the word of God. In addition to that, there's two things that I want you to remember. You can go to the Word, and you can find what you need to fight back. But then in Ephesians 6, he says one more thing. He says that you should stand firm. Here it is, Ephesians 6, 13. Put on the full armor of God. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. You can stand firm. What that means is there are practical things that you can do. This isn't all just fought in, in prayer. The bulk of it is. But there are practical things that you can do when the enemy comes against you to fight. So standing firm means you preach the gospel. When you do that, you're standing firm. You stand firm when you forgive an enemy. You stand firm when you stand up to a bully. You stand firm when you create something that's beautiful. You stand firm when you live with integrity. So in other words, if your office place is full of cynicism and gossip, you just say, I'm going to stand firm. I won't participate in that. I'm not going to gossip about anybody, and I'm going to live with an unbelievable, annoying amount of kindness to all these people. You're standing firm. I'm using my lifestyle to push back on the enemy. Now I've got my prayers working before I go to work. Now I've got my lifestyle working when I'm at work. And together, prayerfully and practically, I'm fighting. You see it? We've called this for years. I've called this talking to students about it. Fighting with your life. You can do it. You can fight with your life. What does that mean? Well, so it means if if you have a bent towards alcohol addiction... You fight with your life when you don't go to the bar. When you don't drive by the liquor store, you fight with your life. People say, Pastor, you got to pray for me, man. I got to go meet all my buddies. I got to go meet the people. I got to hang out with them. And when I'm hanging out at the bar, I might drink. And I'm like, don't go. If you have a penchant towards, towards alcoholism, don't go. Fight with your life. Live with integrity. Live with wholeness. Make decisions in your life. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to hang out with them. I'm not going to do this. You've got problems on your phone and you view things you can't. Share your pastor with somebody else and say, you have my permission to look up what I'm doing. Fight with your life. Fight with what God has given you. Make decisions that empower you. And what happens is it adds power to your prayer. Don't say, God, help me fight this battle of alcoholism, which I'm not making light of. It's very serious. But don't say, I'm fighting this battle of alcoholism, so just help me, and now I'm going to go to the bar. Help me as I do it. No, don't say that. Say, give me the strength to stand. I'm not going to go there. 
I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to have that in my house. I'm not going to be tempted. I'm going to use my lifestyle to fight. You get it? There's a spiritual battle and it's waging all the time. It's all around you. And I want you to realize that you have at your disposal, you've got the word of God. You've got powerful prayer. You've got, you've got practical obedience to God. And those things together, it's like your fists put together in prayer. You can do it. Because your words and your prayers and your actions has more power in him than you ever realized. And we can live this way. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into time of worship and we're, we're early again. We schedule these services to have some extra time at the end so that we can worship. And this is what I want you to do as we worship. Let's close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to think about some of the, some of the situations that you're facing right now. I want you to think about a situation where you feel like the enemy is charging in. It might be for your life. It might be for a friend. It might be for your marriage. It might be for a, a coworker. It might be for a long-lost relative. I don't know what it is, but just take, just take that situation in your hand. Hold it in your heart. I worked with a pastor that would talk about this from time to time, and he, he would say, he'd say, when you're praying, when you're confronting the enemy, you're in Christ. You don't have to spend a ton of time binding this and rebuking that. And a greater is he that's in you than the one that's in the world. So, so you don't have to do a bunch of that. What you can do instead is you can lean into Jesus. You can lean into your authority in Christ. And so you can say, in Jesus' name, I lose the peace of God over that situation. Do you see it? Rather than, oh, devil, I, I bind you. No, don't give him that much credit. Sometimes that's appropriate. But most of the time you say, Jesus. I release your peace into, into my friend. God, I pray that more love would fill his life today. Lord, I pray that your grace and your mercies would be on him today. He wouldn't be able to escape it. Lord, I pray that your love would fill him up and overpower him so that he doesn't have any desire for drink or substance, but instead he just wants to be filled with you and he has the power to move on. Do you see it, everybody? So I want you to take those and we're going to sing this song, Reckless Love, and I want you to declare God's goodness and his life and his power and his peace and mercies and his love over every situation that you're holding there in your heart. Believe that there's no shadow that he wouldn't light up, no mountain he wouldn't climb up because he's coming after us. We're not going to spend time here right now rebuking. We're going to spend time leaning in and declaring his reckless love over every situation as we worship. So let's do that together in Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11.30. See you next time.